the one and only Cliff Richard and Buscemi. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 28 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in semi-chronological order. This month, we're joined once again by Erica White of the wonderfully fun and informative podcast called BC The Beatles. Erica and I will talk about two singles from Cliff Richard and the Shadows and the Love Songs and When in France EPs. But first, it's time for a passport update. The passport has arrived. The information has been corrected. The London trip is back on. So looking forward to uh, going over, and I'm so glad that my long national nightmare is over. So, as promised, I want to share some listener comments and reactions from our last two episodes. Our friend Jim Nugent over on Facebook writes, After listening twice and now finding myself wide awake at 5 a.m., I thought I'd offer my thoughts on episode 26. As George said, we've known each other and collaborated on various things for about 30 years now. He's referring to the episode with George Geddes. George is widely respected for his writings on the shadows and other music genres, and all of my high expectations were fully met by this erudite interview. As he pointed out, and as you, David, made clear from your alternative perspective, there's a whole historical and sociological world in there, referencing everything from the writers of sleeve notes and their contents through to the subcontracting of record pressing by EMI to Pi during the peak days of Beatlemania. The podcasts are just getting better and better. Well done, all concerned. Thanks so much, Jim. Jan also writes on Facebook, what a great episode. She's referring to the last one, episode 27. But of course, all the eps are great in their own way, and there's always something learned. I hadn't listened to When in Spain for a long, long time, and it was nice to revisit. Two great guests. I didn't know Daniel, but I'm very familiar with Robert, who's been part of the Move It mailing list for decades, and also maintains the excellent Cliff Song database, which I refer to at least once a week for one reason or another. Keep up the good work, David, and here's hoping your passport comes through. It did, thank goodness. I can't imagine that happening to me. I'd be freaking out. Trust me, Jan, I spent the summer freaking out. Then we have two more comments, which are new reviews of the show over on Apple Podcasts. I can't stress enough, again, how important it is to get those reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't done that yet, please do. It really helps the show out. Ricky writes... He's in the UK. He writes, love these podcasts. Keep up the great work. I'm starting to think I'm the only one who actually likes Theme for a Dream. I'm sure there are other people. Thanks so much, Ricky. At least one or two. Um, Wim DeLang in Holland. I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name here. Writes, fantastic podcast for every Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan. This is the very place to be when you're into Cliff Richard and the Shadows. I discovered it recently, and now I'm listening from the very first episode and can't stop listening. Here finally is a podcast that treats Cliff and the Shadows music the way it deserves to be treated. Very respectful, full of knowledge and love. Spread the word to everyone who loves Cliff and the Shadows. They will love it too. 
Thanks again to everyone who wrote in. Even if we don't get to read the message on the show, I, I read all the messages and I do appreciate them. And if you want to chime in, drop us a line or leave a comment, you can send me an email. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Or join us on our ever-growing Facebook page, which is also called We Say Yeah. I think last I checked, we have a little over 850 followers on there, something like that. And most importantly, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean. All right, on to our guest and this month's show. We have a bunch of releases to review and discuss with Erica White, co-host of the BC The Beatles podcast. And I began our conversation by asking Erica what's new with BC The Beatles since we last spoke back on Episode 9. Well, it's been a while and we've been on hiatus for a little bit. We've taken some personal time. I actually went back to culinary school to uh, learn pastry and baking. Mm. (laughs) So I've been doing a few other things, but we're actually getting ready to start the podcast again. Um, There's a bunch of exciting things in the Beatles universe, as always, including the new AI assisted single and Paul McCartney's uh, his new podcast or whatever it's going to be and the exhibit at the National Gallery of his photographs. So I think we're going to be coming back very soon. Oh, this is a good topic because I've heard a couple of cliff related AI fan creations. There have been ones where They've taken a song that Cliff has sung, but they've made it sound like Ozzy Osbourne was singing it instead. Obviously, there are a ton of Beatles ones. There's one where they take New by Paul McCartney and they make it sound like John and George are singing along. What do you think of all this stuff? I think it's fun. I... I like it as kind of an exercise. You know, I think I heard one recently of Paul singing Daydream Believer, you know, and they, they're doing things. And of course, the new one, are, they're de-aging Paul's voice. So, you know, Paul singing Queenie Eye from 2013 sounds like he could be singing Monkberry Moon Delight or something like that. So they're fun. They're still not, they're not the Beatles. They're not authentic. I would rather hear Paul at his current age singing something authentic than something where he's de-aged to the point where it's basically just auto-tune. So I don't I don't love that as far as putting out recordings, but as far as now and then or whatever the song is, I don't think that's the way they're going with it. I think what they're going to be doing is similar to the technology they used in the Get Back movie. Uh, for example, when we were able to hear that flower pot conversation, which we could never hear in the original ones. Right. So I think they're they're taking, they're isolating John. They're removing any of the, you know, the noise and other instruments and things like that. They're teaching AI, what John sounds like, so it can pick out precisely and only John from that. And then they're going to be building the Beatles song around it. That's my total speculation. I don't know anything about it, but I think that's as far as they're going to go with it. I think you're correct. You know, I've heard some of the other AI things and they do sound like homegrown, interesting, fun projects. And I'm sort of cynical about them, right? (laughs) And I'm hearing Grow Old With Me and I'm thinking, okay, it sounds really good. You know, whatever they did to John's voice to make it sound crystal clear, like you recorded in the studio, sounds great. And then they have Paul coming in on the bridge. God bless our 
was like a wow moment you know i thought oh this is almost how this song should go mm-hmm. <laughs> it seemed so perfect you know what it is it's it's fan fiction yes it's musical fan fiction and that's wonderful and it's so much fun in its own place and i've read plenty of things about what had happened you know fan fiction as if the beatles never broke up and if they did record those songs together so it's almost like the musical soundtrack to that well There was no such technology back in 1963 when we're talking about these particular songs by Cliff Richard and the Shadows. And I I wanted to have you on for this particular episode because we're going back and revisiting some standards on uh, one of these EPs, arguably two of them. But this is sort of an interesting time for Cliff Richard and the Shadows because they're still extremely popular. And they're having big hits, but they kind of have a sort of dual identity. They're putting out very contemporary pop rock singles, and yet they have these thematic EPs, which I guess would appeal to niche audiences, certainly the two that we're talking about. Um, Overall, what were your thoughts on the material here? It's interesting because I was trying to kind of give an overall, trying to give you an overall opinion of what I thought. And I think what I think is that Cliff is so versatile that he's really, and not in a bad way, but in a very good way, he's all over the place. When he wants to do something that sounds like a standard, he can put himself into that Nat King Cole sort of sound. And and he's right at home when he wants to do something that almost sounds like surf rock. He's right there. You know, he does the French songs. The the first song we're going to talk about, Don't Talk to Him, it reminded me of Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, I, I just felt like there were so many influences that he pulls from and he's able to mold himself into the influences. I know there is a shadow sound, mm-hmm. which actually also don't talk to him. I think with the guitars, yes. that opening felt to me like what I think the shadows sound like. So there's certainly a shadow sound, but he is not afraid to branch out. And of course, this was a time when standards and musical theater were you know seamlessly intertwined with pop music so it was a little bit less odd than it might be now um if a pop artist was to do that but yeah i don't i don't i don't know where i mean yeah i'll ask i'll ask you where where did he feel his place was in the music world at this time did was he experimenting trying to find a next step for himself or was he just trying to expand his fan base so What I know of the time period and what I've read in terms of Cliff's autobiography, which was called The Dreamer, um, he kind of just said yes to everything. (laughs) He's very enthusiastic about, yes, expanding his fan base. Certainly, when we get to the French material, Cliff was very serious about singing songs in other languages. Um, The Beatles, you know, they recorded two songs in German and they thought of it kind of as a chore you know to do Mm -hmm. German versions whereas Cliff 
revels in recording in other languages. So he's got songs in French. He's got albums in Spanish. Um, he's, got, he's got singles coming out in German and Italian. So I don't think he was as concerned about his place in the music world at that moment as much as he was just boyishly enthusiastic about music. I mean, I think it's great. And I think that luckily for him, everything he tries seems to work out and he knows how to, you know, he knows how to fit himself into those genres where that, you know, he has his own sound, but at the same time, it doesn't sound out of place to have him singing in all of these different styles. He knows, you know, he's very, um, you know, he's, he's versatile as a showman, I think. So let's talk about the first single which was released November 1st, 1963. And it's the song we just mentioned. The A-side is Don't Talk to Him, written by Bruce Welch of The Shadows and Cliff. And it was recorded on October 13th, 1963. So pretty soon after it was recorded, it was released. Some guy tells you I don't care and tells you lies while I'm not there, don't talk to him. And if he tells you I'm untrue, then darling, here's what you must do, don't talk to him. And if he tells you I've been seen walking around with Sue and Jean, he's lying again, lying again. This song hit number two on the UK charts. It was kept off the number one spot by She Loves You. By the Beatles. Oh, dang Beatles. I know. Now, coincidentally, both songs, when you think about them lyrically, are about someone telling someone else about someone else. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, this song is easily in my top five Cliff Richard and the Shadows recordings. I think when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, this is nice. And then after hearing it over and over again, I started to really love it. For me, I, it's it's the bridge that really makes this song for me. I just, I just love everything about it. If you hear the words he has to say, And when they start the guitar and the drum break, it's real. Like, that's classic Shadows. If there's anything that says what his sound is, I think it would be this song. Mm. I also I loved this song because of the the rhythmic flow of the lyrics. And I read something where I guess Cliff was asked to the Bruce Welsh asked him to write the lyrics. He had the, the music and, and Cliff wasn't sure. And then the next day he just kind of came back with this. He had said it to the music, but it's it's unusual. The only song that I could really think of that felt similar to me was that song leaning on the lamppost at oh, least in okay. um in pop in pop music which actually is a musical theater song that was repurposed but it has a lot of that classic musical theater gilbert and sullivan patter where the the rhyming is very tight the you know it's a very um narrow 
meaning and you just have to listen to it over and over to really get it because it's so fast. It was so much fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's almost like Bruce said, please write lyrics for this. And Cliff came back with lyrics for every second of this song. Yes, every so note. <laughs> right, every note has a lyric. Dalieri would have said, this is way too many notes. He would not have right. it. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll flip this song over, or flip this single over, rather. And we'll get to the B-side, which was recorded on the 6th of August, 1963. This is a song called Say You're Mine. And it was written by Tony Meehan, who was the first drummer for The Shadows. He was out of the band at this time. So I don't know if this was contributed to The Shadows specifically, or if it was a song that was lying around and it just happened to be written by Tony Meehan. I'm not sure. And it was also co-written by a gentleman named Norman Stracy, who was in an, another instrumental group, very much like The Shadows, called The Hunters, and they all happened to be from Cliff's hometown, which is Cheshunt, England. So there's some kind of scene going on there, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, this was recorded on location at Jubilee Hall in Blackpool because Cliff Richard and The Shadows were performing the summer season in Blackpool, and they cut some songs while there. And I love this song. It has a seductive, bluesy quality to it. I'm, I love it that you, you said that this was actually recorded on location because it gave you such a feeling that you're in some kind of smoky, jazzy, late night club dancing. And maybe it was the environment. Maybe there was, you know, they were just recorded in a different place, but it was it was so soulful. Mm. And especially when you think about it compared to the A-side, it's just such a different song. It's lovely. So... We'll move on. We'll set that single aside. That's a great single. It is. Just one thing, just being from the Beatles world, I want to mention Tony Meehan. He is a little bit infamous in the Beatles world in that he was known for being at the January 1st, 1962 DECA audition, where they were unfortunately passed over in favor of Brian Poole and the Tremolos. So... Yeah, so yeah. we did an episode on Jet Harris and Tony Meehan, and we talked a little bit about the Beatles' DECA audition. I have to defend Tony Meehan a little bit here. I mean, obviously, he couldn't have seen the future, but the DECA audition tapes are not that great. I mean... It's not It's not their best work, that's for sure. And I do think the fact that the, the session was booked for New Year's Day, the morning of New Year's Day, is the culprit in a lot of this because the Beatles had to have been out all night the night before. Well, not only were they were heavily hungover, but they had to drive there late at night in one of the country's worst snowstorms that they had seen for years. They almost died in the bus. It was a horrible day. Yeah, Yeah, it's a credit that they actually got through it. So we'll move on to the Love Songs EP. 
this came out the very same day as the Don't Talk to Him single. So if you bought both of these at the same time, you were in for very different listening experiences. Oh, I bow to no one in my love of standards. I grew up on them and I can't get enough. So this is right up my alley, even though some of the arrangements are a bit much. But uh, we'll start off with the first song. I'm in the mood for love. Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Fields. This was recorded on December 6th, 1962. Actually, it's a little older. It's a song from the 30s. It's been sung by practically Everybody. Everyone from Louis Armstrong to Billie Eilish has sung this song at some point. And I, because of my age, I might have some years on you. I grew up watching The Little Rascals on television. And there's a famous short where Alfalfa sings, I'm in the mood for love. Oh, really? That sounds cute. The next number will be, I'm in the mood for love, sung by a member of the Eagles Club. It's Alfalfa! That, to me, is sort of the definitive version. (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) But Cliff's version, the way this starts off with Cliff's voice and a guitar, it's very classy, it's very intimate, not unlike the songs on the Dream EP that we talked about. And then the strings come in, and the background singers, the Mike Sam's singers, start cooing. Mm -hmm. It does have kind of a Christmassy sound to it for some reason, but... What makes it work is Cliff's vocals. He just sounds so smooth on this. I'm in the mood for love Simply because you're near me Funny, but when you're near me I'm in the mood for love Heaven is in your eyes. So smooth. He's got a little Elvis, a little Bing, a little Sinatra, a little Frankie Avalon. It's kind of all those different classic styles combined. And I, I totally agree. It opening up with that jazz guitar. And I'm I'm a sucker for a jazz guitar because my grandfather was a jazz guitarist. So I just love hearing it. But then combined with that, that classic standard sound, like you said, the the choir, the, you know, the high violin counterpart melodies, you know, singing along with Cliff. It's it's really it's lovely. It's great. And that bit at the end, that tag that Cliff adds that I'm in the mood. It's like, oh, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. That's the button on this. Yeah. I'm in the mood, I'm in the mood, I'm in the mood for love, I'm in the mood for It goes back to what I said about these different listening experiences, because if you bought the single to Don't Talk to Him and and looked at the picture sleeve in the countries that had picture sleeves, 
He's smoldering on the cover. It's definitely a rock single. When you get the Love Songs EP, there's Cliff in a suit, you know, looking like the romantic lead. Yeah, he's got a little of the uh, theatrical in him. He certainly right. likes <laughs> likes to play the parts, which I totally admire. <laughs> so then we get to cut two on this EP, Secret Love, written by Paul Francis Webster and Sammy Fain. Calamity um, Jane. Yes, I associate this song, obviously, with Doris Day. To me, this is like a signature Doris Day song. Yeah. Once I had a secret love That lived within the heart of me All too soon, soon, my secret love Became impatient to be free So I told a friendly star Cliff sounds great again. I realized in listening to this particular EP a few times over strangely what it reminds me of or what cliff's vocals remind me of is a kind of more polished chet baker when chet baker would sing that Mm. kind of breathy intimate sound they're writing songs of love but not for me a lucky stars above but not for me with love to lead the way, I've found more clouds of gray than any Russian play could guarantee. Cliff is a more accomplished singer, and he has better technique. He also has a deeper register than Chet Baker, but that's what came to my mind. What did you think of Cliff's version of Secret Love? I thought it was lovely, especially because it really showed off Cliff's low range, which you don't hear all the time, especially in the pop music and it's gorgeous he's got such a nice like heavy bottom to his his low range you know it it doesn't sound out of range it's full it's wonderful to hear that because he's got a he's got a very wide range i like it too it's uh you know it's not going to make me not think of doris day's version of the song but it's very nice i give him credit for you know, kind of having the nerve, really, <laughs> to cover a song so closely associated with her. Yeah, you know, I just it's... love how um, musical theater and movie musicals just so seamlessly cross over into his repertoire, too. Yeah, and at this time, Cliff himself is making musicals that are mm-hmm. kind of in the style. Well, you know, they have one foot in contemporary pop music, and then the other foot is in that classic Hollywood style. So he does a lot of production numbers singing songs that are in this genre. You know, have you seen any of the uh, Cliff Richard movies? I haven't seen any of those. Is he a dancer as well? Well, not really. Um, I mean, he does choreography really well, actually. But what they they do is they surround him with really good dancers. (laughs) That's good. We flip this EP over and we get to Love Letters, written by Victor Young and Eddie Heyman. This was originally an instrumental in uh, a film starring Joseph Cotton and Jennifer Jones. But the most famous version of this is really the 1962 recording by Keddie Lester, who I interviewed 
Um, really? Yes, last year, and she told me the story behind this song, and she didn't even know it was going to be released as a single. Lincoln, who was the pianist, had this this song, Love Letters, on the piano. I had never heard it before. I didn't know nothing about it. But he played it, but the way he played it was so was so square to me. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, can't you put a little soul into the song? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know what soul was. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, it's gospel, man. Put some gospel. He didn't know what gospel was. I told him, I said, we did have a black bass player, Earl Palmer. Right. I said, I'm going to give you an introduction. I said, I'm going to show you what gospel is. So I just did it with my voice. I just said, dum, 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 and of course, Earl got it. And right away, because it's a gospel. And Lincoln, he said, come on, man, get with it. Get with it. <laughs> and I was the first one to put gospel on pop. Love letters straight from your heart. Keep us so near while apart I'm not alone in the night When I can have all the love that you write I memorize Yeah, it's it's good. It's not going to make me forget Keddie Lester's version. Certainly that's the definitive version, but uh in terms of string arrangements, the, the uh, strings on here, it sounds like Nori Paramore. I've said this before on other podcasts. It sounds like he's been listening to Johnny Mathis records that came out around this time. This is one where I really felt like the orchestrations were a high point. That's the main note that I made in here. And I, I imagine Cliff and Nori Paramore had a very long-standing relationship because that was his regular producer. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, it, it seems like they're, the orchestrations were prominent but they seem to be written to incorporate cliff in such a wonderful way and you could really feel kind of that synergy there in songs like this the last song on this particular ep is another song from the 1930s i only have eyes for you written by al dubin and harry warren this version was recorded on december 28th 1962 
can tell this was recorded around the same time as I'm in the Mood for Love because we have the same kind of background vocals, the Mike Sam singers, although this is a more percussive arrangement. It's almost like a cha-cha. Yeah, this one was interesting. I felt like of the four songs here, this was the one where they really put their own stamp on it. It felt very 60s to me, that meld of the, you know, slight Latin feel with the very standard orchestration. It kind of sounds like a mid-60s movie soundtrack. Mm. And that to me felt so different from other versions of this song, which, you know, a million people have done. But this one was a lot of fun for that reason. And I liked I liked that kind of nuance and contemporary feel that they had for recording it when they did. I know the, there are so many different versions of this song. People have done wonderful versions. The Moonglows recorded an incredible doo-wop version that's just timeless. My love must be a kind of blind love I can't see anyone but you And then later on in the 1970s, Art Garfunkel did a really nice version of it. Yeah, I like that one. So we'll set aside the Love Songs EP. I think we give that a thumbs up. It's a nice little experience. I kind of wish there was more to it. <laughs> I kind of wish it had been an album. Really. I'm surprised it wasn't. Seems like there's so much material here that they could have mined. Absolutely. So let's get to the next piece of music we're going to talk about. It's a single which hit number eight. And this was released on January 24th, 1964. We'll talk about the A-side. It's called I'm the Lonely One, written by songwriter Gordon Mills, and this was recorded November 23rd, 1963. Um, This is a good song. I really like the instrumental break with the shadows and the hand claps, and um, by the time they get to this song in November of 63, they have a brand new member on bass, John Rostel, who later would go on to write a whole bunch of songs for Olivia Newton-John. Oh, cool. Anyway, I digress. I like I'm the Lonely One. It sounds very contemporary. I think there's a Mersey Beat influence on this. Now you come back someday. I've had my fun. Now I'm the lonely one. Oh, yeah. Are you reading my notes? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I swear. <laughs> that being said, I totally agree. It's fun. It's bouncy. It's a little mod. It's got a little skiffle kind of going on in the background. The instrumental break showcases the talents of the band, which I always like to hear. Um, the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about the song and made me want to listen to it a couple of times is that the lyrics are, 
about how much she regrets breaking up with someone he still cares about. But that that, you know, it's a bop. It really is a kind of uh, incongruous with the the music of the lyrics. So it's kind of fun in that way. You have to hear it a few times. Yeah. You know, in the late 70s, Cliff had this big hit with a song called We Don't Talk Anymore, which was incredibly cheerful, too. (laughs) (laughs) The lyric is all about being alone. Uh Um, So we'll flip this record over and the B-side, Watch What You Do With My Baby, written by Bill Giant, Bernie Baum, and Florence Kay. I remember on the last podcast we did together, there was a song, I forget which one it is now, but it reminded you of Herman's Hermits. Well, this is your Herman's Hermits number because Cliff is even double-tracked, which is a Peter Stop reading my notes. I'm sorry. Watch what you do with my baby Watch what you do and don't you go playing around Like you do with other gals you found Watch what you say to my baby while I'm away for you. It is. It also had a little bit of some of the chord progressions of the Beatles, Tell Me Why. So very much situated right in that time period. And again, with the double tracking, with the way Cliff kind of uses a straight tone in his voice, which is so different from what you hear on the standards, he's just proving that he's just so versatile and he's able to adapt his tech, you know, the technically what he's doing, but also just his tone and his delivery to suit whatever mood the song requires. I do like it. And there are several songs that come out around this time, either from Cliff or just by the shadows on their own, which are little nods to the Beatles. Yeah, they like to tribute each other in their way. So we have another EP. It's our last EP to talk about. And this is where I'm going to hopefully rely on you to maybe pronounce these (laughs) things a little better than me. I will do my best. This EP, When in France, came out in February of 64. Boy, there was some big news happening in music in the U.S., in New York in February of 64. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The Beatles had just in, I think it was January, right? They just played in France Mm -hmm. and they weren't received as well as they were in other places. Maybe France was really waiting for this EP to come out. Maybe this is very possible. (laughs) (laughs) So this is part of a series of When In Records. There's a whole album called When in Spain that Cliff and the Shadows did. And there's an album called When in Rome, where all the songs are Italian and they sing in Italian. I love that. I just love that he's so interested in, in you know, singing songs in of other cultures. How is your French, Erica? Mm, uh, I, did, I lived in Montreal for four years. I went to graduate school there. Okay. And unfortunately, when you live in Montreal and you're an Anglophile, they... It's very hard to learn French because they can tell you're struggling. And they're like, oh, we, well, we speak English. So, you know, we're not going to do this. Um, <laughs> so I learned some French, not a lot. I read better than I speak. But, you know, I still every once in a while try and do it. 
I'm going to try and read a little bit in French to keep up with it, but uh, not as good as I'd like. Well, since I can't speak French or know really any French at all, other than a few swear words, which I can't say on the podcast. Ooh, the ones from the Quebec are the best. The church ones are so good. <laughs> so it, to me, Cliff sounds like his pronunciation is spot on. But let's talk about the first song, La Mer. And this is written by, oh, I'm going to murder this name, I know. Charles Trenet. Tr Trenet, okay. Yes. And Leo Chaliac, I think. Um, Sounds right. August 5th, 1963 <laughs> is when this was recorded. And here we go again with the background singers. Um, as nice as this version is, I, I'm just so familiar with Beyond the Sea, the English translation. I know. And Bobby Darren that I can't really enjoy this without wanting to sing Beyond the Sea. La the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea she's there watching for me you know it's funny i feel a little primed for this one because i don't know if you saw the recent black mirror season but there was one it wasn't it wasn't cliff's version but there was one of the episodes um it was the one about the two astronauts where this song in French, La Mer, was the focal point. And so I heard this song in French a number of times in that. And then I hear this. I was so hoping it was the clip version, but it wasn't. It is in the popular culture just a little bit right now. The next cut on this EP is Boom. I think I'm saying it correctly. Yeah. Charles Trenet again. Yes. I, I recorded the same day. In fact, all of these songs were recorded over a two-day period. This is my favorite cut on the EP. Yes, I love this. It's so fun and upbeat, kind of surfer rock. And it's a great contrast to La Mer, so romantic and very classic. And then you kind of turn into this, you know, this this very poppy super fun and you know you can hear it the boom boom you can you know even if you don't speak french you can kind of figure out what it's about and it's a lot of fun these two days that i'm talking about this august 5th and 6th these are the days that they are in blackpool at jubilee hall oh. so this was also recorded on location i'm gonna have to go back and to listen to those ones because i i really feel like you know when we were first talking about that that say your mind was just had such a it had a feel of being in a certain location, and now I want to go back and see if these do as well. So then we get to 
Jatrande, I think. Jatandrei. Okay, I'll go with you. Uh, this is actually written by an Italian, oh. <laughs> Dino Olivieri, and also collaborating, I guess, in French, Louis Potteron? Potterat. Sounds Potterat. good to me. Okay. <laughs> um, it was an Italian song originally, and French lyrics were put to it. It became a hit in 1938 for singer Rina Ketty. This is a song with somber significance because it was a hit when the Germans occupied France during World War II. Oh. I don't know if that historical significance played a part in why Cliff and the Shadows chose to record it for this EP. I will say that if I were going to listen to this song, I'd go back to the original recording. I'm not particularly crazy about Cliff and the Shadows' version. Well, it's very, it's very simple. It's, it's simple. It's sweet. You know, there's no choir. There's no augmented orchestra. You know, I was almost surprised that it wasn't just played on the ukulele. It kind of sounded like that kind of song that could be, you know, just one instrument. So yeah, it was, it was simple. It was a little bit less um, dynamic, I think, than some of the other ones. And it means I will wait. So it's, you know, kind of gives you that feeling. Yeah, I will wait for the next song, which wraps up this EP. <laughs> and <laughs> of all of the songs on here, this is the song I'm most familiar with. I know Ceci Bon. Mm -hmm. So Henri Betty, I think I'm saying it, and Andre Horner wrote this song. And I know it through Eartha Kitt's version. Si bon de partir n'importe où, bras dessus, bras dessous, en chantant des chansons. C'est si bon. I know it's been recorded by a bunch of people, but uh, I think D. Martin did a version. A lot of people have recorded. This is my second favorite on this EP after Boom. Yeah, this one's fun. This kind of sounded like it made me think of a club band leader at the Copa or something like that. It had a real like live show kind of feel to it. Yeah, I think this whole EP is a lot of fun. You know, for some people, it might be the closest they'll ever get to going to France is listening to this. It's kind of a cheap <laughs> vacation. Although, funnily enough, I'm going to be in London in November. How are you? Yes, and London's not too far from Paris 
London's not too far. Where have I heard that before? And I, I suppose I could uh, make the trip. Yeah, I'm going over to London. I've actually got tickets to see Cliff in concert. How many times have you seen him? Or this isn't the first. I've never seen him before. So now, this is the first. Oh my god! This is the first. I know. Yeah, I'm. I'm really looking forward to it. And of course, I'm a Beatles fan too. So I'll be uh, visiting Liverpool one of the days that I'm over there. Oh, you definitely should. I was there a while ago, like almost 20 years ago now, and was in London and in Liverpool. I wasn't there for long enough. But I am planning on going sometime before the end of September so that I can see the Paul McCartney photo exhibit at the National Gallery. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. So you'll have a great time there. Well, I have a I have a very personal reason for wanting to see it. I don't know if you picked up the book uh, 1964, The Eyes of the Storm. It's the photo book that is a collection of the photos that are going to be exhibited, which one of Paul's archivists found all these photos that he took in London, D.C., New York and Paris, I think, in that that crazy whirlwind time that we were just talking about. Um, And of course, one of the ones is um, their time at the Ed Sullivan show. You probably know, because most people who have ever spoken to me know this, is that my grandfather was the guitar player for the Ed Sullivan Band. And oh, yes, he was was there that day and he got my dad an autograph of all four Beatles on the back of a rehearsal call sheet for that morning, which included, of course, like Davy Jones and McCall and Brill and all these people. It was, you know, it's an amazing piece of history that we have. Um, So I'm looking through the book and I found a picture of my grandfather in the book. Wow. Not only a picture of my grandfather, but a picture of my grandfather as John Lennon was signing this autograph that I have sitting in my room. Holy mackerel. For him, a photo taken by Paul McCartney. So I feel like I need to go see this exhibit. Let's just say hypothetically, now this, what I'm about to say is never going to happen in a million years. Never. (laughs) But if you were to sell... This photograph, which you're never going to do, this autograph, you're never going to do it. But if you were to sell this autograph, you would not need to get it verified because you have a photo of this autograph being signed by a Beatle. And to make it even more legit, a Beatle took the damn photograph. Yes, this is the most (laughs) concrete case of provenance you will ever find. (laughs) And unfortunately, I will never sell, but it's good to know. It is. Well, I want to thank you again, Erica, for coming on. I'm I'm bummed that we're done. I know. This is so much fun. My thanks once again to Erica White of BC The Beatles for being our guest this month. As I'm sure you figured out, we recorded that conversation a few months ago. So I'm assuming that she did go to that McCartney exhibit. And with the way things are going with her family, I'm sure a member of the Dave Clark Five took her photo. I mean, who who knows? Next month, a very popular returning guest from The Beat magazine, writer Pat Murphy, joins us to talk about the Constantly single, the Shindig with the Shadows EP, the Geronimo single, and a whole lot more. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be appointment-worthy listening, so make sure you uh, make an appointment to listen. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in London.